Welcome to Under the Skin with me, Russell Brand. This show is sponsored by my new book, Recovery, the number one bestseller. I'm off to America soon to start hawking it around chat shows, so please download it, support it, buy it in a shop. You can get it from russellbrand.com, deliver to your store, door, or you could uh, go to a local bookshop and buy it from them and therefore participate in your local economy. Whatever you do, however your ethics work, go and get that book. I enjoy having things near the top of a chart. It makes me feel good about myself. And you might think, oh, you're just in it for the money. Well, here's some free content. Here's your capitalist under the skin. Gary Young is a British journalist, author and broadcaster. He is editor-at-large for The Guardian and a monthly political columnist for The Nation. He lived in the United States from 2003 to 2015 and his books include Stranger in a Strange Land, Encounters in the Disunited States, No Place Like Home, A Black Britain's Journey Through the American South and his most recent, Another Day in the Death of America, a harrowing account of children's lives cut short by the ubiquity of gun violence in the US. Gary, thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. We've been really keen to get you here for a, a long time. I, I particularly enjoy your journalism and your commentary on the subject of, of violence. What are you... I mean, we know that you're here to talk about another day in the death of America. Where did you? Were there devices that just in one 24-hour period you, I suppose, elevate the deaths that take place on that day and tell their stories? Did you really just choose the day at random? I did. It was the first date I could do. I'd been in uh, London promoting a previous book in October and then uh, I came back. I had a seven-month-old baby, so I had a little bit of work to do to get in the good graces of my family mm. then there was thanksgiving um my family's american my wife is american and this was the first saturday after thanksgiving so it was the it was literally the first chance i mean what's awful about um what shapes this book is the reliability of the statistic so every day in america seven kids on average are shot dead and that statistic is sufficiently reliable that so long as you're choosing a weekend, because more do die at the weekend, or in uh, and well, more do die at the weekend, even more die in the summer when kids are out and playing and all of that. Um, that you could do any weekend, it would it would work horrifically. So you could, in the most brutal manifestation of it you can sit down and wait for the kids to die they will die it's mm. a re reliable it's a perfectly reliable statistic i haven't seen the stats but i can almost guarantee you that last weekend on average seven kids would have at least seven kids would have died on a saturday and a sunday and next weekend will be the same what is it in particular about these deaths that ghouls you why are you fascinated by this it, it's more that they all gall me, and that um, if America pays attention when it's a mass shooting or some kind of spectacle, not every time, but most of the time, but on a daily basis, these deaths are just like the white noise around you that everybody gets on with, and you do become almost inured to it. You know, you're watching the TV, and it's um, after the well, before the sport, you know, and. On 68th and uh, Harrison, a 17-year-old boy was shot dead last night when blah, 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 and then there's a shot of his mum crying and saying he was a lovely boy, and then you're on to the weather. Mm. And um, after a while, that just becomes the way things are. And um, I do think in this sense it helped being British and thinking, well... It doesn't have to be like that, actually. And so what I wanted to do with this random day was pick, let the day pick the kids. Mm. And then, you know, there are, if you pick a different day, you get a different book. Mm. Um, there aren't, uh, every, twice a week, a toddler either kills themselves or kills someone. 
um, you know, there are there would be other days that would be more compelling, maybe, mm. or that pr- would produce more compelling stories. But the point of this was let the day choose the kids, and then I will follow them up and find out who they were because they're just statistics. I understand. So, you, because your methodology ha- has the because it is random, it gives you access to the horror of the randomness because it wasn't selected on the basis of it being, as you say, a compelling story. It's just like you could spin a roulette wheel and that will land on a day where there's devastation and unnecessary death. That's right. And and many of them are compelling. Actually, all of them are compelling in their own way. But the, what was important to me was not to kind of game it in order to try and draw out you know, some, you know, to draw out a specific emotional response. So I was also very determined and went backwards and forwards with my editor about it, um, um, that the the order of the deaths should come in the order that they were shot. Not like... Build a story. Yeah, not the best one here. And So the first child to be shot is in, in some ways the most horrific mm. and... There is a problem there for for a book, which is that you pick up this story. It's about you pick up this book. The first child is the youngest child. He's nine years old. Mm. He answers the door, and his mum's ex lover shoots him in the head, and then runs off and is in, you know ends up getting shot by the cops himself. And it's really the story of this kind of mum's unrelenting grief and her struggle to kind of get back to some kind of normal life and ordinarily you wouldn't you know people kind of you know I read the first chapter and I had to put it down for a week you know Uh, but I thought it was important um, if if that's the order in which they came then that's the order in which you know they should be written if I was gaming it I would have put something a bit easier first Mm. so so obviously what you're saying is truth is important to you and a kind of practical truth as opposed to the different kind of truths that emerge in these times that are to do with, you know, deliberate construction of stories to engender a feeling that some people would argue, even from an artistic perspective, you know, not necessarily a journalistic perspective. Oh, no, but uh, it will be more true, Gary, if the, if the, if it, ends in this climactic moment. More people, you know, the, the kind yeah. of way that we're asked as creative people to uh, compromise is usually it'll reach more people, it'll mm. be easier, isn't it? Ultimately, you want more people to read the book. So why did you have a kind of a, an almost puritanical determination to commit to truth? Yeah, and it is. there is something a bit Brechtian about it in that sense of just kind of, you know, just here it is. And I, I, I guess what I felt was... How's that Brechtian just so Well, in terms of kind of, um, I'm not going to try and manipulate your emotions here. Uh, although, I mean, the subject matter is emotional enough. I want to engage you critically. <clears throat> and right. so one way, I'm not saying that this is what I set out to do, that I, you know, made a pitch for a Brechtian book about child deaths. I didn't, but the way that you described it, I thought it does sound a bit like that. Mm. And that kind of, um, uh, on the one hand, these stories are so horrific and I feel compelling in their own right that um, um, they don't need to be gamed. But that also there is some power in saying this was the day. This was how the day progressed. Yes. This is this is what happened. And, I mean, it's still my book. So there's still f- things I left out and things I put in. It's not like I didn't edit. Mm. And it's also not like I didn't des- desire a response from people. But that um, to the extent that the premise starts with something random. Mm. I wanted to keep to keep honest to that as much as I uh, as much as I possibly could. I can see why you would. It's a very very confronting idea just to say this day happened and this is how the day unfolded and the rea- this is the reality of that day. So if you feel mm. like that was brutal and unbearable, well, that's simply the consequences of looking at reality, not the artistry of a creative person. Mm. Yeah, with get your in it. 
interesting position to analyse what's happening in America with violence more broadly. I read something that you wrote a couple of days ago about what Trump means in terms of hatred um, and, and submerged ideas becoming explicit. Do you is there a, a relationship between the ideas you're exploring in this particular book? Are there are, are we seeing something that's uh, important and unique now? Uh, uh, do you think in America? I think we are. I think that um, it's important to recognise that Trump didn't invent racism or bigotry. He, you know, he's but what there's never been is someone at such a high level who's prepared to be so brazen about their bigotry. And that is new, to have that lead from the front. You know, you could have George Wallace in Alabama, a segregationist running for uh, president, but nobody thought he was going to win. He was a protest candidate. And instead you have Trump going to Alabama, which only removed its state ban on mixed-based marriages in 2000, in the year 2000. I mean, this is, you know, you're talking some serious kind of Taliban year stuff. year 2000? Kind of... No, yeah, all right. Yeah, 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 go on then. Go on, all right. And um, um, trashing these black athletes who um, are making a protest about Black Lives Matter. Now, yeah, well, that, well, just to feel in the listeners, that's that you, this is the protest where NFL players are kneeling during the national anthem because they're saying, right. this, this anthem don't include me. So yeah. I'm not, is that the idea? Yeah, that this anthem, until this anthem represents the ideals of the country, I'm not going to stand up for it. Mm. And, um, and I guess relating that to the themes in the book, I mean, what's interesting in the book is none of the kids, all of the shootings that we know of are same race, which is usual in America. America is segregated to death, so white people kill white people, black people kill black people. That's why the, the, the term black-on-black black violence doesn't mean anything, because it's just violence. That's how American violence works. And... Um, huh. Um, and none of them are killed by cops. But the date, the November the 23rd, 2013, comes in between uh, when George Zimmerman is acquitted for shooting Trayvon Martin dead in Florida, which is when the Black Lives Matter hashtag was coined, and Ferguson, which is when it really took off, when Michael Brown is shot by a cop in broad daylight near St. Uh, St. Louis. So it comes in between those and it doesn't come, none of the deaths conform to that kind of uh, that morality play of white cop, black kid. Mm. Um, but there are two ways in which it relates to the broader theme. And the first is the way that the police treat these deaths for the most part, which is, well, you know, that's the kind of thing that, you know, happens down there. So they don't, very few of the deaths are um, solved. You know, very few of the murders are solved. And most of the parents think that the cops aren't even trying. And then the other thing is the way that they're treated by the press, which is, that's not news, really. If a kid gets killed down there, that's where kids get killed. You know, so... Yeah, yeah. Um, I didn't actually do this in the book, but developed this kind of notion subsequently that, when I went to journalism school, there was, you know, there's this thing when a when dog bites a man, that's not a story. When a man bites a dog, that's a story. But sometimes you have to ask yourself, why do these dogs keep biting people, and yeah. why do the same people keep getting bitten, and who controls these dogs? Sometimes the fact that something keeps happening in a place is a reason to investigate it, not reason to ignore it. That's very interesting, isn't it? Because I suppose that the normalisation is an important part of the intoxication like that this is normal do not question it leave it alone even mm. that well-known journalistic trope is in a i suppose a way of establishing what normal is exactly. what we're surprised at what is acceptable i learned that because part of the reason i do this podcast i'm going to this to university now and i wanted to learn more 
And uh, I learned this thing about necropolitics, like who it's okay to kill. Mm. Like, and, and, and I suppose in the normalisation of the deaths of these children in these particular regions, what you're saying is what the more that in stating that it doesn't matter, you are indicating that this is you're continually broadcasting. It doesn't matter that they're dying. It doesn't matter that they're dying. Right, exactly. That black lives don't matter. And there are these assumptions, right. and these assumptions kind of come out. So one boy in Dallas, he's. Um, um, he gets just 80 words in the Dallas Morning News um, saying that he was shot dead while he was walking with his friend. And then the first comment after this 80 words is this woman saying, well, I don't want to blame the victim. And then, of course, that's what, exactly what she does. Right. Um, but, you know, where were the parents? You know, that I wouldn't let my kid out at 11.30 at night. This is, you know... Um, uh, parents have to ask themselves more questions. And now, the first thing that raises is what time should a kid be out and not get shot? You know, when's mm. curfew for kind of child slaughter? <laughs> you know, so, yeah, don't shoot. After this time, children can be shot. Yeah, exactly. It's like when they say he was, a, he was an A student. It's like, well, what grade do you have to get? Not, <laughs> you know, B plus, you know. Put him up uh, unfortunately, that child wasn't doing that well academically. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah. If only he just pulled his, you know, <sighs> just 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 tried a bit better at algebra, Half maybe he'd still a week be alive. Could have been, exactly. Instead of being out exactly. and being great. But then, secondly, this woman knows nothing about his family. Mm. So I, I find see. his family because it's not like they were interviewed. You only got eighty words, and you find out that. His mum knew exactly where he was. And that night, he'd been with his friend. He was over because he was going with his granny to church the next day. Not a word of a lie. And this is why it's useful to have these other things where you're saying, I'm not saying it out because mm. it just sounds so idyllic. They drank cocoa. They watched We're the Millers. And they played Uno. The worst thing that Samuel Brightman did, he's the kid who was shot that night, was cheat at Uno. And he was a very, very persistent cheater at Una, by all accounts. Then he decided to walk his friend the six minutes back to his granny's house. And during that six minutes, he was shot dead. Nobody knows why. Samuel, they'd only moved there quite recently. Samuel didn't know anyone. He was quite a sweet, quite fragile kid, actually, uh, by every account of all the people that knew him. And there's lots of kids in the book where nobody says that about them. Uh. Um, and um, uh, and then you've got this woman saying, well, you know, I blame the parents. And you're like, well, no, you know, no, you don't know the parents. But there is an assumption, if you're black and working class and you live in some of these areas, that it's not just like that, the, that well, we don't know anyone like that. It's that they're kind of almost a different species. Yes, yes, yes. Where the parents don't love their kids and the kids don't love life and the parents are negligent and the kids are feral. I understand. It's like it becomes permissible and inevitable. So I learned a few things there, like that black lives matters is a necessary response to the assumption black lives don't matter. The yeah. unstated black mm. lives don't matter. I see also that your commitment to truth is a requirement because what we're dealing with is the management of narrative in order to facilitate a particular response. That, In a sense, that the first comment after the 80-word uh, eulogy mm. like was... Uh, like that's almost like a reflex that that yeah. person had. Well, what do you say when a black person's killed in that area? Oh, right. Well, where were the parents? It's been mm. late at night. You know, what I mean, we've, it's a, con a result of conditioning. I was in America when uh, Trayvon Martin was murdered, and uh, like it's, even the sort of grammar of news is sort of it's got an intensity to it that sort of you see the police cars, you see an overhead helicopter shot of a lawn. It all sort of seems a bit like it's all merging into mm. crime and gang, even if those words aren't explicitly being said, because those tracks exist in my mind already. So all you need to do is fire a few little triggers, and I'll go, yeah, probably that kid was sort of a criminal or something. Yeah. You know, like it's it takes effort to unpick my conditioning as a white English person in America having already been indoctrinated before my arrival. Yeah, I mean, it, it takes everybody in effort, actually, even, the, you know, um, uh, I mean, different efforts for different kinds of people, but the condition and the dominance, the kind of hegemony of that narrative is so strong that the parents of the kids who die will say to you, 
He hadn't been in trouble with the police. He didn't do drugs. And what they're doing is listing the reasons why he shouldn't have died. Right. Listing the reasons why their child shouldn't have died. Every single... So there were 10 kids got shot dead that during that 24-hour period. And they weren't all black. Seven were black, two Latino, one white. Every single black parent, when you ask them, did you think this would happen? Did you... Had... You know... Was this on your radar to a person? They all said, oh, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, Samuel's mum, and Samuel, you know, he didn't get in trouble in school or anything. And his mum said, well, I didn't think it would be him. I thought it would be his brother. You know, mm. the, the dad in Newark just said, you're not doing your job properly if you don't think that your kid could be shot in this city. You just, you know, you... you, you. So it, there is this kind of, what did you call it, necro... Necropolitics. Necropolitics. is kind of... It's not just for the dominant forces in, in terms of who should be shot. It kind of... It encompasses all of us are thinking, well... So I have two American kids and um, we were living in America while I was writing this book and that's when you realise, yeah, that's the... That's the fear I have for my child. I'm walking around with that too. Um, there was a weird thing in the reporting of it because people went on about parenting so much. So I started looking to see if there was any documentation about parenting and race. And I found out that uh, this was a government study that black dads were first of all more likely to be single dads than any other race. But secondly, were more likely to bathe read to, help their children with homework, uh, uh, have breakfast with them, a whole range of things that black dads, while they were least likely to live with the mother, they were the most likely to do all these things with their kids. And I just thought, well, that can't be true. You know, so then I'm looking at a range of... You are a black dad. Well, no, this is the point. I'm looking through, uh, you know, um, trying to find someone who's written something to... And then I think, well, what the hell are you doing? You're a black dad. <laughs> you do all those things. And somehow <laughs> you're kind of, you know, the the the, the that idea is so dominant is. that you just say, well, you know, obviously not, you know. Um, but it was. But it's more powerful than our own mind, like the Groucho Marx quote, who are you going to believe, me or your own eyes? <laughs> yeah, that voice becomes so dominant in your consciousness that it usurps reality oh that's so now i see the importance of the device that truth like if you the, the commitment to the simple truth exposes narratives that are, are so uh visceral startling and horrific it reawakens us from the normalization of the death of children so in your book it's like hold on a minute children dying isn't a thing that you just isn't it's not an 80 word obituary and then just roll your eyes and say it must be parental responsibility now i can sort of see again that the our idea of parental responsibility and the incorporation of crime and stuff into those stories is a way of enhancing both the idea that these you're somehow culpability of the victim you're mm. responsible and that has that plays a big role in american culture yeah. in that it's part of the general this is an individualized culture if there's mm. some terrible bad thing happening to you it's not because you're this color or from this economic class you just didn't try hard enough yeah you should have tried a bit harder yeah. to not get shot like you know sort of like in this ought to be a, a, a different hue so um it's but that's an actually that's a sort of a vital thread in perhaps mm. it's the defining thread of uh, the uh, American ideology is individualism and personal culpability versus mm. any kind of connect collective or national responsibility. That's something that's continually being eroded. How does gun culture participate in this? Why is it like, given that you're a person who tells stories in the way that you do, what, like it's not enough, like it's not oh, well, people just like guns. Why is this idea so uh, irresistible to uh, American people? Why, why isn't it like you know, like you see sort of like uh, Obama's speech after Sandy Hook or whatever, mm -hmm. and you don't think, oh right, that's the day now where we don't have guns anymore. But it's just like, no, wh why is this force so powerful? What does it mean to their unconscious? Yeah, which is a which it's an excellent question, and um, I guess one of the best ways to explain it would be, and you touched on it there in terms of it tapping into some core things about how America feels about itself. They've got nothing to do with guns, but work quite well with guns. Right. So, 
um, when I used to go to the NRA, I went to a couple of NRA conventions, the National Rifle Association, which is the gun lobby. And What's you, the vibe like? Weird, oh. weird. And kind of, um, it's a lot of white guys. Uh, that's the kind of 90% of the demographic, probably more. Although they're trying to push guns in, in more in women's directions. So lots of now pink guns and nice things that you can carry your gun in and kind of ways to look pretty with your gun and stuff like that. But um, um, lots of white guys and an almost kind of almost sexual relationship to these to these weapons. You know, they're kind of, they're stroking them and they're kind of, you know, they're, they're you know, they're, they're pouring them basically. Mm. Mm. And I would really play up my Englishness in these things. Yeah. I mean, first of all, because it, uh, you know, it helps, and secondly, because it mitigates the blackness. <laughs> <laughs> Not these people. Oh, oh you throw me now, and um, oh, 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 yeah, oh, hang on, pass. yeah, exactly. <laughs> Downton Abbey coming out of your mouth. They think, <laughs> even if you know, I'm from Stevenage, really, and. I've got, I don't know, Puff Daddy. I'm looking at Puff Daddy, but I'm hearing Down Abbey. If I could so, explain Stevenage to them, that would sort everything that out. Sort it? Everything don't worry, out. Stevenage is a shithole. All right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you can continue with your prejudices. <laughs> you can, yes. I'm from Grey's in Essex. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, respect talk. to Stevenage. Um, and I say, I don't understand this. Or rather, I don't understand this. Um, explain it to me. And to a person, they were off to the races. They'll say, are you married? Yeah. Do you have children? Yeah. Imagine someone broke into your house and they wanted to uh, rape your wife and kill your children and take everything that you worked for. What are you going to do? Are you going to, what, wave a stick at them? Are you going to call the cops and wait for the cops to come? Or are you going to defend your family and defend what you've earned? And so it speaks to kind of masculinity, mm. homestead, mm. Um, uh, small government, Mm. individualism, yeah. uh, a notion of kind of might being right, defend what's yours. Now, the reality is, uh, well, there are several kind of facts that contradict that. Firstly, most people who are shot dead kill themselves. Secondly, you're mu after that, you're much more likely to be shot dead by someone you know mm. than someone you don't. So what they should say is, are you married? Yes. Well, watch out for your wife. She's <laughs> shoot right her. To shoot Start you. with her. Yeah. And so... Um, they are, um, so they evoke these uh, very primal yes. um, things in the culture. Yes. And when confronted with that, if you start talking about background checks and, um, you know, s banning semi-automatic weapons and stuff like that, it's not really a match for these basic ideas of American individualism, small government, masculinity, and so on, you're oh, talking wow. about tinkering with things. So they have a powerful narrative yes. that they can tap into, and the gun control people don't. It's brilliant, isn't it? Because it doesn't seem like it should be important enough, a National Rifle Association. I mean, it's like you imagine the English version of that have just been a bunch of geezers in Berber jackets yeah. hanging around in the shires. Like, they wouldn't be, you wouldn't think affecting policy, although I'm sure we have our own sort of uniquely bizarre equivalent within some other more totemic issue in our own culture. But what I was struck by, Gary, there was like it shows you the limits of the rational mind, which is curious when we live in what is a purportedly a rationalistic and materialist culture that's based primarily, at least explicitly, on economics, that people's drives are not being sourced from rationale. Because yeah. if you hit them with, no, 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 you're most likely first to kill yourself or be killed by someone that you know. So the best thing you can do, if that is your fear, if fear is your motivator, is do not have a gun. Yeah. It doesn't. I don't know anybody. Just stay in. Yeah, stay indoors. Don't go out. But that is the ultimate solution. Just atrophy in a cupboard. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant, the solution. Wasting away in a darkened space. So, like, it just shows you that truth, again, is irrelevant. It's irrelevant because they must know that. They mm. must know. They must have been hit with those stats, do you think? Well, th they have. And what they do is um, they deflect them to other things so you're talking about the hood i don't live in the hood that's where these things happen you know so if you say to them which is true you're much more likely to be shot people who have guns in the house are much more likely to be shot then they basically deflect that to 
no, you're talking about black people, really. So when I was promoting my book in America on uh, the radio, uh, it was a calling show, and one guy said, um, if you just took out a few cities in America, then that whole average would be kind of way lower. And I was saying, well, yeah, but if you took out a few cities in America, it wouldn't be America, would it? I mean, America is the whole, what, take out Chicago, New York, L.A., Detroit, where right, are you going to get yeah, your cars yeah, yeah, yeah. from? Where are you going to get your blues from? Where you, you know, that's mental. <laughs> where are you going to get your blues from? So that's, again, it's in, it's coded like that this is a get, even mentally, there is ghettoization happening. Yeah. The way that statistics and nation is regarded incorporates a ghettoization. Oh, this is a terrible statistic, but fortunately, as white people that live in a suburban area, it's irrelevant. Yeah. And that, oh, that's facilitated by an individualistic idea isn't it or an individualistic perspective of, uh, uh, of yourself and your country i suppose uh, or their country so like this um oh, well your kids are american so listen though uh the other thing you mentioned is it's like everything that in that national rifle connect uh convention seemed like it was primal you know their mm. sexual connection the idea of power the idea of fear so we're, when we're talking about guns we're not really talking about guns we're talking about power and fear sexual energies latent impotence sense of social breakdown, rampant individualism. Uh, so it's a very, very difficult thing to unravel because mm. it's very hard for people to... Like, I wonder what would literally happen. Like, why is it that it's no president can countenance or no government can countenance, listen, we're just doing this thing because it's plainly the right thing to do? What's yeah. the consequences? Yeah, I mean, th there's partly there's a fatalism about it. So when I asked... Every family that I spoke to, so what do you think is going on here? When I asked them the open-ended question, none of them mentioned guns. Wow. Because I figure in the book, it's like if your kid got run over, you wouldn't say, well, traffic. We have to get rid of traffic because you can't imagine a world without traffic. Mm. And so, um, you know, Imagining world without guns. They don't mention poverty. They don't mention racism, because it's like, well, that's everywhere. Yeah. So kind of how you know. So I'm gonna go with I don't know parents or that kid's dad or this is a rough neighbourhood, but not mm. the kind of um, uh, uh, bigger thing. Brilliant. I also think that kind of um, uh, guns are big business, mm. and so there is that's what. But it would have to be bigger than that, wouldn't it? Because, like, the statistically and financially, it's not enough to have that kind of potency. It must be serving something very, very powerful. And I think that what you said there about that people can't imagine it, we just can't. That's been taken off the table, the idea that we could moderate traffic, the idea that we could uh, moderate guns. You, all of these ideas are excluded and we accept that this is a, this is reality. And I think probably all of us are on that scale somewhere with what we can conceive of and how radical a change we're willing to countenance, how beautiful a world we're prepared to imagine. Like mm. None of us are willing to start. So like, so like what kind of conclusions does this lead you to in terms of power structures and the way that power operates if you sort of if it seems literally unimaginable to not have guns well that and this as you suggest this can work for almost anything in any country that if you are able to kind of swamp the field in a way if you are able to kind of if you are able to remove something from public discussion and remove it from public countenance, then um, uh, then there's no reason why it shouldn't go on f forever. So mm. a, a kind of different example would be nuclear weapons. I used to be quite involved with CND. I used to be on the National Council of CND. And I went away for kind of 12 years, 15 years to, uh, to the States. And when I came back and Corbyn won and he talked about getting rid of Trident, and I kind of thought... Have we still got Trident? Do you know what I mean? Is that I'd, people have stopped talking about it? It stopped being uh, yeah. nuclear disarmament. It stopped being a thing. And you know, I thought, God, how weird! I thought we were supposed to be afraid of you know, like young men from the north west with backpacks. That's right. And we've got this kind of lumbering, kind of weird. Who's who are we supposed to be firing that at? <laughs> and, um, um, 
but kind of it had been removed from discussion. So I just kind of stopped thinking about it. And you were a person that was in CND, uh, obviously abreast of these ideas. So that's very interesting. It's almost uh, occurred to me when you're talking there, mate, was that we're, we're at operating in a time where the powerful now have amassed data and a historical knowledge of how public consciousness and the public sphere works. So they almost know you've only got to manage this for a little bit of time and we're all going to be cool. And I think an obvious and pertinent recent example is Grenfell and the management of the deaths mm. around the times. Like, just keep just keep distracting. Don't talk about don't clarify any information. It will dissipate as surely it will. Now, like one of those totemic events that scars a national consciousness because it's almost too perfect. This sometimes happens, I notice, in current affairs where symbolically many, many threads come together and there's an indelible connection to truth. You can't, mm. you go, oh no, this must be because we've long regarded poor people as dispensable and we've been making terrible financial decisions and we've been ignoring it and all of our social infrastructures are paper tigers and there's nothing set up to protect people and we actually don't care, so now we're going to have to stare it in the face. Even in like, when that kind of emblematic event occurs, there's a sort of sense that just ride this out they'll stop caring other stuff will happen in a while this will seem like an obsolete concern like trident replaced with a newer more novel kind of fear yeah and that i mean to your point about grenfell because i i do remember thinking at the time um because it happened a week after the uh, election a week after the election and that effectively what had happened during that election was that Labour had introduced a series of ideas that were once considered mainstream and actually in most of Europe are considered mainstream, but had been removed from the public square. We're going to tax rich people a bit more. Um, uh, we're going to not have tuition fees, which when I studied at university didn't exist. Um, we are, you know, we're going to we're going to move to a reality that we actually had within my you know, living memory. I'm 48, so it's not like, you know, I'm that old. And they, um, and and they called austerity what it was, and so there was when Grenfell happened. I do think there was a place for people to put it that we just had this moment, and then Grenfell happened, and there was a kind of like that's kind of something that we've been talking about. You know that it was that it was part of the constellation that kind of brought those threads together. I think, and. Um, uh, and I saw it in on social media where when things like this happen, there's always a group of people kind of who I'm sympathetic to who want to draw the border conclusions and say, you know, look, this is part of something bigger, you know, if it's 9-11 or whatever. And then there's always a group of people who seem to be more dominant and in any case have the power of the media behind them who say... You're exploiting this tragedy for political ends. Stop talking. <laughs> stop talking about all the serious stuff and respect for the victims. Right. And they tried that on social media, and with Grenfell, it didn't work. People were like, "No, this is exactly the time to talk about this. What else should we be talking about?" And I do feel that I'm not saying you know Jeremy Corbyn made that happen, but that um, coming out of the, this election, there was a there was a place to go. There was a language for it and people were kind of attuned to it. And um, and it's one of those examples where people, you know, people go, well, well, Labour didn't win, you know, and it's like, well, actually they won quite a lot of arguments mm. and they changed the national conversation and yes, they are not the, you know, they have not formed a government, but let's not pretend they didn't win anything or didn't change anything. It's like there's an identifiable disjunct because the sort of preceding media noise was so much about condemnation and ridicule that mm. the fact that in the face of that there was a, a positive reaction and a positive result, it starts to demonstrate this fissure that exists between this is the reality we're telling you mm. and this is the reality you're experiencing. Now, the efficacy of media in deadening and uh, masking our own reality, even as you said, like yeah, I was thinking like that. Even me as a person that oh, I like to think, oh, I'm really up for change and sort of radical ideas. Like I feel like a giddy schoolgirl is. Oh, they might get rid of tuition fees. Oh bloody hell! It's like you're right. I mean, like 
that was in my lifetime, that, that free education. It's all right, that the way that it is situated. Now, what this suggests to me, mate, and given that we sort of started off talking about the way we tell stories, and you elected with your most recent book to make a commitment to truth, even if that costs you in a, a structural sense, like, oh, no, the best terrible death occurs too early or whatever it is, you know. So one, one thing I think that seems to uh, be occurring is uh, that how come then, what what are we doing if we've got truth on our side, broadly speaking, by which I mean, you know, collectivise, break down power, stop telling these stories of the individual, stop ignoring how the influence of the powerful is having a devastating effect on ordinary people's lives, stop separating from one another, finding reasons to hate each other. The, how, why are we not able to tell these stories in an effective way if we have truth on our side? Why is this dominant story continuing to dominate? Um. I mean, I think there are a few reasons. There's probably millions, but just, I mean, partly I, I fear sometimes we don't quite even believe those stories ourselves, right. that we want things to be true, but um, mm. we we don't know where they are. We're quite atomized. Yeah. So there are these moments, like when you realize, oh my God, everybody else has been sitting at their telly, shouting at their telly for the last six months as well. I didn't realise. So there's that moment during the election where it was one of the question times when uh, a young woman says, there's a discussion about nuclear weapons and disarmament, and she says, I'm just wondering why so many people want to bomb everyone. <laughs> and there's a big cheer in the audience, like, yeah, what? what? What are we... Why are we having that conversation? Who do you want to bomb? And so there are... We've, we all feel like... Well, maybe it's just me. There's a lack of confidence, I guess. Mm. Then it's also true, I think, that we are, um, uh, for the most part, notwithstanding social media, we don't run stuff. You know, we don't own uh, large media corporations and things like that. We are still kind of quite marginal in terms of the means of distribution. And then... Certainly in a country like Britain or America, you have the kind of weight of this kind of awful history, which to some extent um, could damn the people within it. So if you want to talk honestly, say, about British racism or about Britain, then you have to talk about empire and slavery and murder and uh, a range of things that kind of people feel implicated in. And if you say, um, you know, people say, well, um, people will say, we won the war, or even though they didn't fight, mm. or we won the World Cup, even though they didn't play, but they'll never say, we own slaves or, um, you know, we stole stuff. You know, they just don't, they're just not going to do that. They're not going to claim that. And so having kind of honest conversations about who we are and what we've done, um, people kind of shy away from that. So in more powerful countries, ah. people kind of, um, the more honest conversation and the more truthful conversation Gosh. is also kind of a more difficult conversation. We've put too much into our shadows. We've allowed this mm. to be a kind of a repository of truth where we don't look at, oh, no, this is what Britain means. So be careful when you talk about Britain. This is what freedom is. This is what we have done. This is what we must own. So true, like we've become, and of course there are many, many truths, but there mm. are so many unaddressed aspects of our reality that I suppose um, constructed realities that we're invited to participate in seem more uh, tactile, more attractive because we're of an, a, a sort of an unwillingness for us to embrace our the, the truth of who we are culturally, and I would have to argue who we are individually that there's been mm. there's a reluctance. Like well, I, sometimes I think, Gary, like is it like you know like I hold these ideals, but if so, like you know perhaps. Because I don't like it when people go to me, well, why don't you give up all your money then? I always mm. think that's like, oh, fuck off and leave me alone. Right? <laughs> <laughs> stop stop cutting me out of the argument, right? Mm. But like uh, I do sometimes think, would it, like, right, okay, what happens if I 
go, these people are going to cut. Anyone who needs a house can come and live in my house now. What's that going to do to my consciousness? What is my resistance to that idea? Is it a personal thing? Now, I know I've got limited power as an individual, but it's my unwillingness to commit. It's an unwillingness to look at what's in my shadow, my own selfishness, my own capitalism, Mm. my own love of comfort, my own love of privilege, my own prejudice, my own ways of garnering what I am and who I feel about myself that... Particip- like I am a participant in this system in these ways. Yeah, and that's a kind of, that is a, um, in a way we kind of have to keep those two things in our head at the same time, right? So we are, we are people, we are flawed individuals and we live in a capitalist society and we, you know, we want houses and we want th- things that are going to, my, my we, you know, we want things, we want comfort mm. and my, personal feeling about all that stuff is do what you have to do so long as you don't screw anybody else over um you know if you can point to a time or a place where i've actually done some, you know actually made somebody else poorer or worse off then that's one thing but that um you giving away your money doesn't change capitalism it just makes you poorer and um uh I'm interested in changing the system, not in you know seeing you in um, uh, seeing you in in poverty, but also just kind of linking where we are as individuals to kind of more collective things. So this and this comes back to the gun thing actually, and and children in particular that we talk about personal responsibility a lot with guns, but there is also a, with children particularly a collective responsibility that's why we have social services child protection services child courts all that kind of thing there is an awareness that they're not fully responsible and so there is this general way of understanding things i think that like i am not a state i am not a society i'm an individual so when people say well Say someone did that to your kid, wouldn't you want to just go out and murder them? Say, yeah, I would. That's why I'm glad there's a court <laughs> because I don't want to be responsible for kind of, you know, how we respond to these things personally. That I would, I would rather there was some independent, reasoned way of doing these things. And I guess, yeah, we all have certain privileges. We, we live in the West, mm. we all have certain privileges. So, we have to be aware of them, but we can't let us have them disable us. What can we learn from the particular distinctions between these two, the, the studies of violence that you've undertaken in the United States and, and England? What do the differences say about those countries, do you think? Well, um, so I've been doing a series this year on knife crime in Britain called Beyond the Blade, um, looking at tracking all the deaths of kids 19 and under um, from um, um, from stabbings and um, which kind of mirrors in a way what what was happening in the states uh, I think the broad the broad lesson that you one can learn from both of those things is that is that there are reasons why this happens that are not people kind of feel like this falls out of a blue sky or a dark sky that kind of it's evil it's you know bad people it's and it's really you know in america if you take segregation poverty uh um, racism kind of underinvestment in in communities and then you put on the top of that big pile of tinder a violent weapon that can kill people really easily what do you think is going to happen in britain um, if you cut child and adolescent mental health services, cut youth services, um, slash, um, you know, social services through kind of uh, local councils, um, then what do you think is going to happen? Something is going to give, and of course, it's going to be the poorest people who are going to suffer. So there are, and nobody, I, I, the last piece I did for the, um, Beyond the Blade series was an interview with the mother of a child who had killed someone who'd been sentenced and she had written to her MP saying please save my child she had taken parenting courses she 
had told her local social services, either my child's going to be killed or there's going to be a body bag. She had asked them to move her because her child was struggling. She had tried all of this stuff. And what she said was, did my child, did the local authority put a knife in my child's hand? No, he's responsible for what he did. Did I try everything I could? Yes. And where we failed? Yes. Mm. And it's possible to keep all of those things in your head at one time. Yes. That everybody has to take responsibility for what they do, and that includes us collectively as a society. I understand. We've been overly biasing towards narratives that are about individualism. And the reason I think we're so susceptible to that idea is because we live in our own heads. We are individuals. So that seems when people go, you know, oh, well, he did it. He shouldn't have done it. You think, oh, yeah, I'm me and I didn't do it. There's immediately a sort of a fertile ground for that to flourish in. And there almost it requires of us a little more work to see us, the invisible threads between us, the collective connections that a culture is made made up of and if that story is not articulated and beautifully told we forget it because it's almost like I feel like I return like Sisyphus to the myself as a individually driven uh, on my own those kind of psychological uh, memes mm. like they're, they're effective in my own head so it, it takes an effort to feel like I'm connected I'm part of this and we are all one it's a difficult story so it's in a way, we live in a culture that tells us the stories about ourselves that are the worst stories and neglects to tell us the positive stories. Mm. And it seems like, I mean, gosh, economics is one level of it. But, I, you know, sometimes I wonder if there is more than just entropy or, uh, you know, like inertia at work behind it, because it seems like such malice. It seems like it can this be as simple as the attainment of profit behind all of this suffering behind all this pain is just people going no 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 it's better to sell stuff if people think they're individuals and that they've got to buy things to feel better and if their lives are bad it's their fault yeah is it that gary after all your years of i work feel like it's a, it's um it's a it's more about neglect it's more about these going back to the black lives matter thing these people don't matter what happens to these people doesn't matter um uh, and if we can convince ourselves that these people don't matter and, and what happens and doesn't matter, then all sorts of things come into play. And so what this, what we've been trying to do with Beyond the Blade and why I was so keen to interview the, the mother of the boy who killed was to make the point that in order to solve these things, we have to humanise everybody. Mm-hmm. We actually, we have to... It's not a killer. It's a child who killed. It's a child who did something monstrous. It's not a monster. That people are more than their crimes. That in a world where some of these people, anybody in this story isn't human, all sorts of things are possible to uh, neglect, to forget, to dismiss. And so we have to start from the basis that even the people who are doing things that we hate, Nazis were humans. And that actually is the problem. Were they not human, we could park that somewhere else. Mm. That that period and all of the other periods that were similar, the Armenian genocide, doesn't matter, they were committed by human beings. That's what's scary about it. Once we start pretending that they're not human beings, then we found a way to kind of um, uh, park this stuff somewhere else. So people do, people can do very bad things. They can also do brilliant, wonderful, beautiful things. And um, um, either way, and, and, and then comes the problem of saying, well, Nelson Mandela, he was a saint, or saying that people right. who do wonderful things are saintly. No, they're still, they're people. Yes, they're people. Yes. And that is a very inspiring notion because it means it could be you. Yeah, it could be yeah. you doing that. Yes, yes, I see the necessity of it and I see now I understand your commitment to truth because you're, within truth there is complexity and in the complexity though there is revelation. If you sort of finish off, uh, uh, if you allow the thread to finish where the conventional narrative ends, then you are den- you're denying yourself truth. Just beyond that is where the explanation is. If you allow the story of it was this time of night in this community with this within this demographic, then you are not participating in real truth there. I understand, I understand the importance and significance of that. I also recognise uh, how 
important it is to broadcast to firstly I don't know identify different stories each I think another relatively recent and interesting example were the was it when was uh, that there were sort of the riots around that police custody murder sort of around North London oh in Hackney yeah. yeah that odd the, the peculiar way that it sort of bloomed like some sort of continuum of consciousness was sort of regionally awakening what did you what did you think about that, that those disturbances well they're not far from from uh, where I live, and um, you know, I, th- I I thought, well, yes, it, you know, a young person's been killed, and uh, what kind of world would it be where people weren't angry about that? And you can try and manage that anger, but the real way to kind of, I mean, there are two things that you have to do to actually confront it. The first is tell the truth about how that happened and make sure somebody's accountable. And mm. the second is make sure it never happens again. And anything short of that won't won't dissipate the anger. But people have a right to be angry, not least when people, you know, there, there is this sense, where, whether it's Grenfell or, or something like this, of like, well, that's no way to kind of, <laughs> you know, sort that out, you know, write a letter to your MP. Or, well, when people feel that a system has failed them and that, it didn't just fail them like, oh, and now, you know, it's going to be another week before, you know, my my toilet's fixed. It failed them in a way that meant that somebody died, that it was existential. Somebody died. Or in, in the case of Grenfell, lots of people died. Oh. Then anger is the very least you can expect. And... um um there is some sense for those people who could never imagine that this could be them that there is some sense of decorum missing some sense of propriety and you know i'm always struck by remembering michael heseltine's pamphlet i know uh, you didn't see that coming did you <laughs> michael heseltine's report after the 81 riots which was entitled It Took a Riot. And he's making the point, yeah, I know, weird, that, like, what else would you have listened to? These people have been saying all sorts of things for all this amount of time and nothing's happened. So what, if not this, I don't think this was entirely his argument, but it took this for you to pay attention. And um, um, a society has to ask itself when these things blow up and they say, well, you know, we have to kind of um, get back to normal. We have to get, you know, calls for calm. There's always calls for calm. (laughs) And it's like, how calm can you be when people are being shot dead in the street? How calm can you be when people are being murdered by the state? What kind of peace existed before these riots. I'm sure you felt very peaceful, but I don't feel peaceful if I think that my child could be one of those. And there is, coming back to the book, there is this sense from that that letter, the woman who kind of wrote in after Samuel Brightman died, of this could not be my child. Yeah. This could not be me. I cannot imagine a single way in the world in which this could be me. So this is happening to a different species. Brilliant. This is like like, like in James Baldwin's phrase about, or, or at least analysis of the creation of taxonomies, the necessary other, that if you can have a demonstrably different and hopefully visually different other, then there's a sense that, oh, I'm not culpable. But like it doesn't require such vivid demonstration. Like I note the way that I think of people that are uh, rough sleepers as, oh, well, that's not me. Mm. That's like that couldn't be me. Oh, like because once you recognise that these distinctions are merely superficial stories, veneers over the truth. Suddenly we are all vulnerable. Suddenly it's all of our children. Suddenly we're all at risk. Suddenly change becomes an absolute necessity within which we must all participate. And I really appreciate uh, the way that you tell stories and the way that you communicate for illuminating through truth ideas that may otherwise not have been revealed. So I'm very grateful. Thank you for coming on Under the Skin, Thanks mate. Thanks for having me. It's a good, good show, wasn't it? Splendid. We're, nice one. We, uh, you've got Michael Essertine in. Before we go, as well as your own book, what other books would you recommend if sometimes we ask people to recommend a few books for, that we should read? Um, uh, I've just been reading No Is Not Enough by Naomi Klein, which oh, yeah, I think she's is... Uh, she's uh, been on the show. She's good. Yeah, no Is Not Enough. Excellent. Um, 
Um, Could be like a book for Underground you kid, Railroad um, by Colson Whitehead, which is a brilliant book about um, uh, abolitionists. It's a it's a novel, uh, which is uh, um, which is which is really good. If you've got kids under the age of about four, so much I really like. It's just a story about this little kid, and everybody's coming around because they're having a surprise party for his dad, and it's kind of every kind of slice of kind of Caribbean life, I think, in London. So his Uncle Dee Dee, who looks like a bit of a player, and his auntie, whatever, who looks like she probably uh, works in local government. And he's got two aunts, and one's really fat and one's really skinny. And then his mum, anyway, and then his dad comes home from the office and they all have a big party. It's, it's good. I mean, I hope you're not ruining the plot there, Gary. You've yeah. told us quite a lot about yeah. so much. Yeah, well, the kids ended up going to bed. There you go. I'm going to be analysing it next week, so I'm pretty sure there's a subtext to that. <laughs> thanks, thanks very much, Gary, Thank for you. coming on. Another day in the death of America. That's out now, yeah? I'll read it. I like that you've got these uh, 1950s white people on the cover. Good call, good shout, because <laughs> that's a very clear semiotic indicator there. I've been to college. You have been to college. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers, mate. Thank you. That show was sponsored by my new book, Recovery, the number one bestseller. Available now. Go to russellbrand.com to buy it or go to a lovely little local shop. Perhaps it's run by an old lady. She's only got one arm. Buy it from her. I don't know what she's like. She could have numerous arms. I don't know know why I've got into that, really. Uh, Yeah, get the book. Anyway, this is free, this podcast. The Radio X podcast is free. The Truth is free. Go and get that book, Recovery. And also subscribe to this podcast and listen to the Radio X podcast. Thank you. I love you. Bye. Bye. What do you want now? I missed you a bit. Who are you even? Just another part of me. (laughs) Right, get out, Michael. Crikey.